Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And on the Thought Leader Podcast, we search the world for interesting and fascinating and sometimes remarkably smart guests who are going to challenge the way you think, they're going to inform you of things that you may not have thought about, and they're going to ignite your imagination as we discuss all sorts of topics. All right, without further ado... Hello, David. So I have to start out by talking about serif font. So your logo is, it's like, um, it's, it's, it's a, um, I don't know, you explain it. <laughs> it's a, it's a constructed font. It's a constructed logo based off a of serif font, mushing my initials together. So what are your opinions on serif fonts? Because I, you know everyone's doing the sans serif thing as of like 15 years ago, and they're still saying it's modern. Uh, listen, anytime people put a broad brushstroke on what taste is and what people like, they're instantly wrong because there are more exceptions than there are examples to the rules. So I went with something that my community responds to well and that I liked. Nice. And it works for me. So when did you realize that your community liked you like was that age three four five when when was the first sort of light bulb that went off and says people like me um i'll let you know when i get there <laughs> nice good one <laughs> i like that I, no, all right i think the best i'm a huge howard stern fan but once upon a time ago he said the people who like me listen for an hour and 15 minutes and the people who hate me listen for an hour and a half and and i realized <laughs> that we have odd ways of determining whether people like us or not. I'm more interested in whether I'm making an impact. And so the first time I got hate mail, you know, pissed off at a post that I had put up or hated the book or whatever, then I realized, wow, you know, if, if our opinions are milk toast and useless, nobody responds. And people tend to respond when they're ticked off more actively than when they love it. So the first time you get hate mail, it's sort of an acknowledgement that you're having an impact because those people will always respond before the people who really like you. Okay, so I have one more ridiculous comment, and, but just because you talked about the hate mail stuff, I thought maybe maybe I'll ask. So I'm sure that when you walk down the street, your actual beard is controversial, right? So I could see people in restaurants arguing about, is it a mustache? Is it a beard? Is it a, what is it? How, how did he do that? How is it partially black and... So can we? Can no, we, no, go we can there? definitely we can definitely play with it because it's not just there; it's also in theater. When I have the full beard grown in, there's also a black line across the top. It sort of looks like an inverted Mr. T. It's very strange, and this is the way the pattern grows. Right? We were sitting in the first couple rows of Atlanta's Fox Theater and seeing the performance of Hair, and at one point towards the end, they come down into the audience and start messing with the audience. And the character Claude comes and sits in my lap. I'm on the aisle. And he said, oh, my, there's a party on your face. And he started touching my face. The problem was his mic was still hot. So I've been hearing about that from other people for the last six years. <laughs> so, yeah, controversial. It does draw attention. So I, I, I'm going to jump in, Dave. And I, we were talking before we started the interview. We were talking about you know, the fact that 
in the morning you're supposed to go cycling. I've heard a rumour that you're a gold medal rower. Um, so something of an athlete, and you're also a wine collector. Oh, it's up there on the wall. There you go. Do you? Yeah. Wow. Nice. So I'm interested in about do you enjoy drinking the wine as well as collecting? And then I'd love to hear about the gold medal rowing. Well, why do you think I collect it? <laughs> well, I, I enjoy a glass of wine, yeah. <laughs> says when you buy it when it's younger and you hold it until it's better, it's a less expensive way to have a hobby. Yeah, I, I tend, well, that, that's the theory. It just never gets old enough. Oh, oh, no, no. It gets old enough because I'm impatient. So, you know, I do, I literally, I have labels on the bottoms of the bottle that tell me when what you the, can have it. the ideal drinking range is. So I can just look at the back of the bottle and know. Nice. So I don't, it reduces the decision energy drain. Well, it is. I, I know when I go into my cellar and I have to decide what am I going to open tonight. That's a very disturbing decision. There's, there's nothing to base it on. I mean, what do I feel Well, like? that decision actually is one of the bits of job security in my 30-year marriage. Elaine has no idea what wine to drink when. So when she oh. says, what wine are we having? That means go grab a bottle. And it's so long as I'm the only one who knows what to pull, I have a job here. Perfect. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If, you, if you said to me, you know, uh, the two words wine and cellar, and if the wine was worth a lot, I'd, I'd see if I could find a buyer. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a bad joke yeah. with a lot of prep, but I thought it was pretty good. It's a good setup. It's yet slow. No, and, and I, you know, I know that there are people who collect it and sell it. And I, if I wanted to trade something, I'd stay in the markets instead of wine because I can't drink stock. So speaking of kind of ridiculous conversations like the one we're having, your job is all about that, right? And you've got all these sort of initials behind your name, coaching, intelligence, all these different things. The strangest thing is that coaching about 15 years ago was a, was a real, it was synonymous with intelligence. It was synonymous with executive coaching, high level stuff, really up leveling your life. There's been this influx. It's like um, sort of bilge water or something is now mixing with fresh water. How do you feel about kind of even the term coaching or, or what you do for a living and, and what's, what's the way to go forward with it? Ooh, that's, that's a huge, fascinating question because you're right coaching got popular just like it was popular decade before that to be a consultant which means you got fired and you went out on your own and you knew how to do it better than everybody else so you were a consultant and when your child came home and said they were marrying a consultant you're like oh my god they're unemployed right so coaching got super popular you know the sales guru 30 years got outplaced during a merger decides I'm going to go teach other teams how to sell, but I'm going to call myself a sales coach instead of a sales consultant, and I can get hired more because it's hip. The problem is there's zero barrier to entry. If you have a pulse, you can call yourself a coach. So what differentiates is who the person is, what training and certification they've had. We don't have licensing. We're going to get, we're going to get canceled by zombie goaches, coaches, uh, oh, goaches. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're coaches yeah, yeah. that are half goat. Yeah. I, I, I get flamed by coaches that aren't certified because I think that it's, I think it's terrible for the coaching industry to have anybody able to be a coach. There is, it is a profession. It is a discipline. There's skills, there's knowledge. There's a lot of training and certification to be a good coach, whether you're a life coach, an executive coach, health coach, it doesn't matter. 
So to call yourself a coach just because you want to and allowing that to happen puts, it makes it harder for the market to get good coaching. And here's the thing, a coach approach to leading your team has become a core leadership competency. Well, here's the problem. Those same leaders that are expected to have that coach approach to their leadership, most times they're neither given coaching nor training in having a coach approach to leadership. So they're reaching outside of their organizations to get coaching. How the hell do they know where to go? Susie lives next door. She says she's a coach. Three days ago, she was a trainer, but now she can coach people. And, and by the way, we also have a lot of therapists that are leaving because one thing the coaching, we don't have licensing. And licensing for therapists is a patchwork, a 50-state nightmarish patchwork. The advantage of not having licensing is that we deal with international accrediting bodies. But we have a lot of therapists that are coming in to be coaches. They're saying, well, I've been a therapist for 20 years. Of course I can coach. Yeah, no, you can't. And, and so it's important. I think what we need in coaching is more leaning into these international bodies and there are two primary ones, you know, there are three, and, uh, Pacific Rim, there's a European one and, and an international one based in the US. And I think it's important that we start taking a stand for what real coaching is and not just letting anybody with a pulse be a coach. But see, hold on, here's the other downside of that. Uh, in 2019, before this whole COVID thing, the average income for a life coach was 33,600 a year. And for an executive coach, it was just over 57,000. And that means that 50% make less than that. That's terrible. It's because people, not only are they not great coaches, they have no idea what it means to be an entrepreneur. And there's that overlap. Makes her a really good coach when you can do both well. So there's a... And by the way, that was the, that was the small soapbox version. Yeah, so uh, that's fine. I, I, that up. You, you're speaking my language. I, I've been vocal about the 23-year-old life coaches. I've been very vocal about the the 50-year-old coach that um, used to be a bus driver and now he, he paid $7,000, did a three-week course, and now he's a coach. And there's a whole industry of marketing folk who prey on the coach market to try and get them out of that $50,000 maximum income level without huh. any thought about their skills. So the whole industry has has become filled with wannabes and charlatans for want of a better description. And it disturbs me greatly. I just had an exchange with, LinkedIn has become a cesspool of cold pitch slaps masquerading as connection requests. And I think Reed Hoffman would be appalled if you were still using LinkedIn. And I get no less than three a week from coaches who make their money coaching other coaches. So I think for half of our industry, it's just people passing around the same $10. It's crazy. We talk about coaches that coach the coaches that coach coaching, right? It's like <laughs> right. this. It's, it's just Dr. Seuss nightmare. <laughs> yeah. right. And you could trace it back if you really wanted to. It's kind of like COVID, right? But it's really tricky after a few different connections, right? It's Right. Who's patient yeah. zero in that market? It's, <laughs> yes. And I'm not sure how they do it because to be fair, I've been a mentor coach for uh, since 2011, and I'm shocked at how little coaches are willing to, after they've done their training and certification, how little they're willing to pay to continue their education and continue getting coaching. You know, the ones who want to charge more are aiming to pay as little as possible for their own coaching. So I, I don't know how these people are actually living off of the vast majority of coaches who don't make money. 
Well, of course, you spend less. If you're only earning fifty thousand dollars a year, it's pretty hard to spend money on on education. So, so what makes you as a coach different? Well, when people ask me what I do, I never say I'm a coach. Oh, we we actually run from that word. So yeah, we're definitely not. Coaches. Well, because thirteen years ago when I started, and I, remember, I'm in Atlanta, Southern tier. Their response was always, "Oh yeah, what sport?" So th- there wasn't a lot of understanding of what coaching actually was. So I don't say I'm a coach. People, did you have a go-to for to get out of that conversation quickly? Did you say cross-country running or something? Or yeah, girls field hockey. No, I actually never gave okay. the answer. I actually tried to have a conversation, which it probably would have been better to give them something ludicrous. Yeah, underwater chess. I, I, when people ask me what I do, the response is that I reintroduce successful entrepreneurs to their families. And I think what coaches miss is speaking to the outcome of the client having worked with them, the actual derived value. We get so caught up in talking about what's in the pie and how the pie is made and what it tastes like that we forget what they really care about. What does it feel like after I've eaten it? And so the leaders that are totally overcalibrated, whether it's because of unwritten rules they have about achievement or performance or what they're what they should be doing as a leader they can get totally over calibrated towards the doing and forget the whole being aspect forget connecting to what's important in their world and the people that are important in their world and those are the folks that i ended up working with and those are my favorite folk to work with i I don't really have a demographic i have a psychographic regardless of where people lay in the demographic field it's These are folks, my people are folk who have already understood that the way to get better at doing what you do is to get better at being who you be, who you are at your core. And so that's what I do. Hey, editors, don't take out that like rubbing sound because that was actually David rubbing his uh, (laughs) his chest (laughs) to indicate himself. So keep that. Yeah. So so question question for you, David, about pie. I mean, you brought up pie. And I love pie, good pie. I also love bad pie, the stuff that's sort of gummy. But my question is that you said that I should be eating pie according to how I will feel afterwards. But that's kind of one of my issues, right? I'm, I'm wanting to be in the moment of eating the pie, not thinking about how I'm going to feel after I polish off the whole disgusting thing. Yeah, I think part of this may be skewed by the fact that I've been gluten-free because I have to for 17 years. So, oh my goodness. It, wow. Yeah. So, I, we always feel like crap after eating a gluten free pie. Okay. The, okay. the primary ingredients <laughs> in gluten free breads is, is sand and gravel. So, it always feels yeah. terrible. Nice. Nice. Yeah. You can't quite grind sand fine enough <sighs> to make it not Never crunch. Gets, right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, now it makes a lot of sense why you're so smart. You're, you're just, eating sand uh, every day and, and it's, it's just made you smarter. So what's your view of not just coaching, but business? So everything's pivoting, everything's changing. We don't exist anymore. We're all turning into metaverse. You know, Microsoft is announcing its metaverse and everything's happening in video games. And where are we going? Has anything really changed or is it just kind of a new flashy thing? Oh, everything's changed. And and the reason everything's changed is because the definitions we used to have about work and office and place and home, they're all muddied and different. 
And I think the, the people who will do well in the next couple of years are the ones who realize that we're leaning into creating the next new abnormal. And the folks that are trying to recreate or return to the old normal are going to be sadly disappointed and left behind, uh, much like the 0809 fiscal readjustment. We're in a completely different place. And expecting everybody to come back and have all your little people in your same physical space, that's just not going to happen anymore. People have started to create the life they want and then design their work around that. We've been doing it the other way around. And nobody's going back to that. And the people that left, I mean, New York suffered a huge outflow. People who realized they don't have to live there anymore and pay to live there anymore when I could live other places and same income, same company based in the New York area. And this happened in San Francisco, this happened in a number of cities and live where I want, something that fits with my values. And I'm not going back to the office. And part of what's fueling the great resignation is you want me to put my ass in your chair, I'm gonna go find another chair that I don't have to sit in. People are taking an active, intentional role in what they want their life to look like. No one's going back. Now, that's really interesting because we also live in a society where, oh, this is clever. I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring sand back into the conversation. I'm going to bring wine back into the conversation. Um, oh, all right. Let's call back. So sand is the base ingredient for glass and wine comes in glass unless you're going to be kind of freaking by that boxed wine stuff, which is very loosely termed wine. So when I think about cardboard when I think about wine, I think about <laughs> Gary V. When I think about Gary V, I think about hustle and grind. So we've got the great resignation. People are going out. They're being told they can have a side gig, but they got to hustle and grind. They got to work twenty hours a day and get you know two hours of sleep and talk to their kids for an hour a week. Could not disagree more. Is this the way the world is going? No, there are people that'll follow him. There are people that, I don't want to discount everything he says because that's one sliver of Gary Vee's approach to the world that I think is dead wrong. Uh, in fact, I think it's just as wrong and just as evil as the term work-life balance. It's, it's atrocious. And that's not, that's living off the adrenaline. Fine, you can do that for a period of time. I, I think the problem is that fuels something that is dangerous and that's people who will serve anyone and everyone and even if you can sustain that for a period of time, there's a net, let's just stay in the service sector side. Let's take it out of product. Anything to do with service, serving folk that are less than a 10 out of 10 for you has a net energetic cost. Serving clients that are a 10 out of 10 for you that are right in line with who you're here to serve, why, what you do best, what they need most, when that's all aligned and they're a 10 out of 10, that's a net energetic gain. And that's important. Look, the, the fine-tuning piece is important. When you can finally learn to start saying no to those that aren't a 10, even the 9s and the 9.9s, saying no to anybody who's not a 10 is what will make you successful. The grind means inevitably that you're just trying to serve anyone. And that's a killer. So just because I can... We're talking about grinding, which I believe is how you make glass. At least there's something about grinding. Then you were talking about net energetic cost, which of course, as a speaker, coach, trainer person, you know, you got to say it's neck, net energetic cost. We're talking about wine and <laughs> wine and glass. So it's 
It's all about the bottleneck. All about the bottleneck. I see a model so, coming. <laughs> yeah, so so if there's a bottleneck, where is it? And where are we going next? Scarcity is is the bottleneck always. Uh, no, let me let me let me pull that back because I think there there's an underlying piece that triggers the scarcity. We culturally now we have too many of us that are living under the false false impression that we're all separate. Take it back to the very Buddhist approach. We are all connected and all one. That's what has allowed our species to evolve to the point that we have. You can debate whether we're devolving now, but still, it's what has made us this successful over the last 40,000 years is belonging and connectedness, that tribal nature. And I think our accepting the lie that we're all separate, which is amplified even more into individualistic societies like we see in North America, it creates disconnection, it creates a loneliness, and it creates a sense of scarcity at the most basic Maslow's levels that we are now so feeling so scarce when it comes to connection and meaningful connection that we try to fill our world with other things and you can never have enough of what you don't really need. And so that's part of our problem. We're operating from a place of scarcity back to serving anyone as an entrepreneur. It's exhausting. So when we lean back into connection, when we lean back into creating community and our tribes and belonging, human belonging, not click belonging, it makes a tremendous difference in our ability to be fulfilled. Adding a zero doesn't make us any happier. 75 year longitudinal study from Harvard has shown us that over and over and over again. More money doesn't make you happier. In fact, oftentimes once you've passed that magic $70,000 a year mark, you tend to be less happy. So by the way, I'm not saying we should only make 70 grand. What I'm saying is our challenge comes from when we make money, the number of dollars in the bank, the number of zeros in our bank account, a measure of our success or worse, our worth, that's the killer. We all have a portfolio of currencies that matter, right? Whether it's faith, community, friends, health, whatever they may be, we all have our own portfolio. The money is just the fungible asset that allows us to balance and have those things. So money, we have no intrinsic attachment to. So when we use it as a measure of our worth or our, 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 our health, our success, we're screwed. Balancing our portfolio of real currencies, that's the game. Then it doesn't matter what you make or keep or save or donate. So portfolio, I, I love that word. If you were thinking in terms of investing in the future, you would invest in a portfolio of products. Some would be stocks, some properties, some gold, some cryptos, some whatever else it is that you want to invest in. But as people who value their life as opposed to their material possessions, their financial future, what would be considered a good balance of portfolio life assets? So, so that's the thing. There, there's, <laughs> there's never a single answer. You know, the game you can play when, when you look at balance, it's not static. You know, stand on one foot and then look down at your ankle. It's constantly in motion. Small muscles readjusting to keep you balanced given the current conditions. And when you're talking about balancing your portfolio, that changes the, what's important and how important it is in relation to each other is a constant balance. You're creating rhythm across these. What they are, all of our real currencies in that portfolio are easy to identify when you look through the lens of your values. 
In fact, they're almost paired oftentimes one-to-one. But the game is to look at what are the things that truly move you? What are your core drivers? What are your values? Not picking from a list of aspirational words, but what are the things that actually move you? And balancing those, that's the portfolio dance, is balancing your values-based currencies. And again, that changes over time. You know, I, I will tell you, <laughs> our portfolio changed a lot on August 26, 2019, when both of our youngest children went back to college. We were empty nest all the way until March 19, 2020, when they came home. So, so, you know, during that period, we had our portfolio looked very different than when we had two other humans in the house. We have still one. So, so you, know, you have to pay attention to what the prevailing conditions are, just like with your ankle in constant motion. Love the idea of the ankle. And I also like the, what you said, aspirational something. Isn't that where you, you, you breathe things in and choke? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if I can tie those to tie those together to values. <laughs> <laughs> so as you're doing that, as you're doing that, uh, tell folks where they can find you, who you might be looking for. And yeah, that's about it. Great. Uh, so I'd like to make it easy, right? At dtkcoaching.com. DTK are just my initials. dtkcoaching.com. Great place to get more information about me, the way I see the world, the book that I wrote and stuff that I'm doing. But more importantly, one of the things I realized, I realized recently there's a great way to describe the type of coaching that I do. And I'm not paralleling myself to Michelangelo because that would feel a little arrogant, but I'm gonna use him as an example. When he was asked, how do you carve such exquisite figures? He said, I don't, I merely free them from the stone. And the kind of coaching that I do is, is supporting my clients while they're chipping away everything that isn't real, that isn't true, that isn't them, so they can live, love, and lead from their best. That's the work. And, and I actually put something up online called, uh, it, which is a quiz that helps you assess where you are in terms of living, loving, and leading at your best. And if you go to dtkquiz.com, you can take the assessment and see how it lands. And I'm Love not that. going to put you in a funnel that's selling nonstop. That's a great place for us to start a conversation, but more importantly for you to figure out where you are. Love that. And I, you know, just, just so I can give you some, um, something you can take with you, you know, it's like, um, those sixth grade desks. If you buy one at a uh, yard sale years after it's, it's been abandoned by the school and, and it's the gum got is the, still under it. 74 layers of gum. Yeah. Yes. And so what you do with clients is, you, you know, you're just prying all of the 74 layers of gum off, you know, so yes. I think that would resonate with your audience. Ooh, yeah. just the, you said resin. I know you said resonate, but I just, Oof. that's how hard it is underneath. Oy. Yeah. Thanks for the mental image. So thank you so much for chatting with us and for uh, joking around with us. This has been a real blast. My pleasure. I very much enjoyed our conversation. This has been such a wonderful conversation today. It was surprising, it was intriguing, it was interesting. And this is just an example of the types of guests that we have on the Thought Leader podcast. And we would love you to subscribe so you get to hear the next issue. Or you can visit our, our website. Our website is thoughtpartnergroup.com. And at the top, you'll see a little button that says, take the assessment. In one minute, you can take the assessment and get a response from us. We'll read everyone. All right. Take care, have a good life, and we'll see you on the next one.
We'll be right back.